All right. Well, you can turn with me to Proverbs chapter five, Proverbs chapter five. Really grateful for Pastor Kevin preaching uh, two weeks through Proverbs three and four and uh, for John Jenks uh, being with us last week. But I'm excited to be with you back in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter five. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at chapters uh, six and seven, at least in part together. Uh, Let me pray briefly. We'll do a little bit of review and then we're going to jump right into Proverbs chapter five. Uh, Would you bow your head? Pray with me one more time. Father God, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that we would hear in the wisdom of this father to this son, your wisdom to us, that we might order our lives in accordance with your will and ways for your glory and for our good. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus, our savior. Amen. We talked about how Proverbs teaches wisdom. I think it's fairly obvious, but as we begin the book, we we notice, okay, this is a book that's teaching us wisdom and it's teaching us through individual Proverbs or these kind of pithy little sayings that are memorable to get our attention. And wisdom is skill for living. It's kind of a basic three word definition. Wisdom is skill for living and wisdom always starts with God. So we may find ourselves in a portion of this book where it's teaching us about wisdom and we think, okay, how how do we relate this to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, right? So this skill for living isn't like skill for living that anyone would have, but it's underneath in the context of a Godward awareness and focus rightly related to God, the fear of the Lord. And of course, that comes through faith in in Christ. When we come to chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, as we begin thinking about the fear of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 5, uh, we, we read and, and we, we, we see the beginning of another saying. We've talked about the father having these talks with his son. This is the eighth talk, if you're keeping careful count. Look at how verse 1 begins. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. He said the same thing different ways now eight times, right? Son, listen up. This is important. I want to make sure I have your ear. Make sure you're listening. This is, this is really important. And then in verse three, we have a character introduced who we've met before. She's described in, in, in the ESV translation as a forbidden woman. Maybe you have a a footnote, uh, mine does, that says the Hebrew means strange, strange. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Why is she forbidden? Well, she's out of place, we might say, in some way. She's off limits. That's probably how we would put it today. Why? Well, in the larger, larger context of Proverbs, the reason why this woman is off limits is she's someone else's wife, right? That's that's the issue. We talked about this several weeks ago, but just by way of reminder, uh, in Scripture, there's uh, wife and not your wife. So if you're if you're single, everyone is not your wife. And and if you're married, everyone but your wife is in the category of not your wife. So this father is talking to his son. His son is is single and he's going to give positive instruction. Hey, son, this is what you should look for in a wife. We'll get to that later in the book of Proverbs. But here he begins with a warning. 
this woman is off limits, kind of most fundamentally because she's someone else's wife. She is not your wife. She's already married. She isn't a potential spouse even. But more significantly here, she's not just a temptation, potential, but she is tempting this young man. She will, in chapter 7, promise easy pleasure. She'll promise love and affection and thrills, but she is off limits. She is being unfaithful. So the father says, don't be wooed by her. Don't be drawn in. So he begins with a warning regarding sinful sensuality. We noted this back in chapter 2. We have these ten talks from the father to the son that make up all of Proverbs 1 through 7. And in those ten talks, we had this temptation addressed already once way back in chapter 2. And the last three talks, that's how significant this temptation, this sin struggle may be for this young man. The last three talks that the father has with his son are about this, about sinful sensuality. That's how dangerous this is. This is how dangerous it is for us today in our sexualized culture. How can the son be protected then? He's identified an issue and he's going to warn about it. But but how can he be protected? And he's going to share two things primarily in our chapter. So I have two main points. And then under our first point, we're going to see four reasons And three keys. So, but here's the first point. Stay clear. Stay clear of sinful sensuality. Stay clear of sinful sensuality. He's going to give four reasons why. Here's the first one. Sinful sensuality is enticing. Why should you stay clear? It is enticing. Look down with me at verse 3 again. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. He describes someone who's using their words to draw the vulnerable in. But I think the category is is far broader than that. The idea is enticement, isn't it? It's something that could be applied to all sorts of temptations to, to men and women. The idea is enticement. Now, the reference to oil here is probably a little lost on us. But the idea is sweet and smooth, right? Sweet and smooth, like honey, like, like oil. Of course, it doesn't have to be words. The enticement might be a certain look, might be a flirtation, might be a comment, might be a character on a show or in a movie. Might be a pornographic image or video. Could be someone you see at the gym. There's an intentionality here, but the enticement doesn't just limit itself to that. There's something mesmerizing here. It's enticing, but it's also ensnaring. It's ensnaring. Look down at verse 9 and following. It's ensnaring. Verse 9, there's a reference to your years. This isn't a one and done. Look at the end of verse 11. 
or sorry, verse 11, at the end of your life, you groan. Look down at verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. It's ensnaring this enticement. It'll hold on to you. And so this warning is serious. You may not get free from this. Sexual sin entices, but it also ensnares. Third reason, it comes with regret. That's the whole premise of verses 9 through 14. This regret, this groaning. The father wants his son to hear the voice of regret from men who have been ensnared by sexual sin. So he doesn't want just his son to listen to his friends or his peers, but to retirees. He wants his son to count the cost of impurity now before he spent all his strength paying its price. Listen again to verse 7 and following. Hear now what he's saying. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Exactly what he said back in verse 1. Here's the central command. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And then here's this idea of, man, regret comes. Here it comes. Lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's enticing. It's ensnaring. It comes with regret. And in the end, it is forth destructive. It is destructive. Look back at verse five. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow to the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her, she, sorry, her ways wander and she does not know it. She is aimless. Following her will lead to destruction. He's at the brink of utter ruin, verse 14. Look down at verse 23. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Stay clear of it. Why? It's enticing and it will ensnare you and it will bring regret. And in the end, it'll bring destruction. He's not mincing words about sexual sin and sensuality. So what are the keys? What are the keys to staying clear? What are the keys to understanding the warning that culminates in verse 8? Let me give you three keys. The first is so simple, but so often missed. If you want to stay clear of sinful sensuality, key number one, stay clear of temptation. Stay clear of Known or likely sources of temptation. Look again at verse 8. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So he uses kind of spatial language. You can picture the scenario. So the wise father doesn't say, stay out of her bedroom. 
He says, don't go to her front door. Stay clear of temptation. That's the point. It may be places for you. Maybe store or mall or gym. It may be people. They give you attention. They show an interest. They flirt. I think for most, the danger isn't a place or some sort of red light district or something like that. No, it's online. And it's, it's always with you, right? As close as your smartphone. Heath Lambert, who wrote a really helpful book, I reference it there as a resource in your bulletin entitled Finally Free. He talks about three factors that lead someone to look at porn. They're really simple. They all begin with the same letter. Anonymity, access, and appetite. Remove one, and you've removed the temptation. Anonymity, access, and appetite. You can have anonymity, and you can have access. But if there's no appetite, you don't look. But here's the issue. You need, you need to address both sides of it, right? So uh, there's so many ways we can put this. There's so many ways we can put this. Um, but I, I want to try to paint the way of wisdom as a both and, right? So address the heart, starve the appetite that lusts after what is off limits, and put up fences and boundaries, right? Remove access, remove anonymity, attack the appetite, address anonymity, and address access. Don't, don't say, okay, I can live with unfiltered internet, infinite anonymity online, because I just don't have the appetite. Well, what if the appetite comes? Well, suddenly you find yourself in a place where you, you have access. We want changed hearts. Hearts that walk in purity. But if you have a smartphone, whether you know it or not, you and anyone who has access to your smartphone has 24-hour access. They don't have to leave their room. They don't have to go to some sleazy shop. They have seeming anonymity. In the bulletin, I mentioned another resource, which is Covenant Eyes. And Covenant Eyes is a powerful tool. It's not the only tool. It's a company. It will charge you money, but I think it's a good investment because it limits access through Internet filtration and it removes anonymity through accountability partners who see what you are looking at online. So it takes the three and says, we can help you with two of those. Limited, but significant help. For some, filtration is not enough. You shouldn't have a smartphone. You shouldn't be online. Do you remember, some of you aren't old enough, but do you remember life before smartphones? Do you remember life before the Internet? This passage reads differently before the Internet and smartphones. But I would be remiss not to draw application to online pornography, wouldn't I? In our day and age. And, and so we need, to be, we need to be wise. Jesus says, pluck out an eye, cut off a hand. As one preacher put it, suffer whatever you must to win the war on lust. That's Jesus' point. 
Staying clear of temptation is wise. But it isn't it isn't enough. Right. Removing access and anonymity is is wise, but it isn't enough. We have to starve our flesh and its appetite for lust. We live in a sexualized culture. And so potential temptations are everywhere. One author described it as ambient pornography. And unless you you move to an island, you can't leave the culture. So we need to challenge the appetite itself. One principle that can be helpful here is the principle of no second look. So we are avoiding staying clear of temptation, but then we're living our lives and we find moments of temptation that surprise us that we didn't know to avoid or we'd have to simply leave the culture. And so what do we do? We say, okay, there's a principle of no second look, either literally or in our minds. When a temptation comes, I I say no. Make a commitment, friends, to do all in your power to avoid temptation. And here in our passage, especially sinful sexual temptation. In the moment of strength is when you make the decision that will keep you from temptation in the moment of weakness. That's wisdom. Work to remove anonymity, access, and appetite. Work to remove those by God's grace, for God's glory. Work to remove those from your life. First key, stay clear of temptation. Second key, love discipline. We see this in the negative in verse 12. How I hated discipline. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. What's the implication? This young man needs self-control. He needs discipline. He needs to learn to suffer whatever he must to win the war and lust. He needs to get serious. He needs to be willing to inconvenience himself and humble himself for the sake of his soul. He needs to mortify his flesh to put to death the remaining indwelling sin in his life. He needs to starve it, not feed it, not revive it, not return to it. He does this by the spirit. Romans eight thirteen. He does this out of his union with Christ. We're dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so we consider ourselves dead indeed unto sin. We seek to renew our minds. Romans 12. Brothers and sisters, we who are in Christ can battle this sin and know significant victory. Because Jesus has changed Not on only our relationship with God, united to him by faith, but also our relationship to sin. Not only has sin's penalty been removed, not only can we anticipate when its presence will be removed in glory, but the power of sin in the life of the believer has been snapped. There's victory that's been won. And so we consider that and we don't revive the flesh. We don't give in to temptation. We say, no, by the spirit's power, I'm going to put this to death in my life. I'm going to pursue purity. And what will that require? But discipline, 
So stay clear of temptation, love discipline, say, I am willing to do the hard thing. I am willing to be different from my friends, weird, not online, not on social media, harder to get a hold of. I'm willing to do those things because this matters. Holiness matters. Third, listen, listen to wisdom. Again, we get it in the negative The regret, I did not listen to the voice of teachers, verse 13, or incline my ear to instructors. Look down at verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Friends, we've already seen the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And verse 21 says, fear of the Lord that keeps you from the edge of the cliff is found in this. He sees, he knows. Look again at verse 21. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Friends, anonymity is a lie. It's a lie. Your God knows and sees every place you go, in person, in your mind, or online. So don't don't forget... Don't forget that part of wisdom is fearing the Lord. It's where it all begins. Part of wisdom is remembering that the Lord that you fear is one who sees and knows. But part of wisdom is also remembering that sin is destructive. Wisdom keeps the end of sin in mind. It will ruin your life. One well-known preacher often said, and I don't know if it's original to him, but he's the one most often cited online as having said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The preacher who's known for saying that most often is Ravi Zacharias. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences of your sin. Our passage would say to you, no one wants to give away their honor and their years. No one wants to have their strength taken from them. No one wants to sin against their wife or their future wife in such a deep and personal way. No one wants to come to the end of their life and have nothing but regret and loss. No one wants to become an outsider in worship. Don't forget that sin is destructive. It will have consequences in this life. I want to read an extended quote. I've edited it slightly, uh, but I've left enough to remain, keep some of the barbs still in, I think. But it's, I think, a helpful quote, and it's a segue to our second point. This quote comes from uh, Al Mohler in a helpful article where he talks about uh, the seductiveness of pornography and the integrity of marriage. This is what he writes. Consider these two pictures. The first is of a man who has set himself toward a commitment to purity and is living in integrity with his wife. In order to fulfill his wife's rightful expectations and to maximize their mutual pleasure in the marriage bed, he is careful to live, to talk, 
to lead and to love in such a way that his wife finds her fulfillment in giving herself to him in love. Intimacy in marriage becomes a fulfillment of their entire relationship, not an isolated physical act that is merely incidental to their love for each other. Neither uses it as a means of manipulation. Neither is inordinately focused merely on self-centered personal pleasure. Both give themselves to each other in unapologetic and unhindered passion. In this picture, there is no shame. Before God, this man can be confident that he is fulfilling his responsibilities both as a male and as a man. He, he is directing his drive and his desires and his physical embodiment toward the one flesh relationship that is the perfect paradigm of God's intention in creation. By contrast, consider another man. This man lives alone or at least in a context other than holy marriage. Directed inwardly rather than outwardly, his desires have become an engine for lust and self-gratification. Pornography is the essence of his interest and arousal. Rather than taking satisfaction in a wife, he looks at dirty pictures in order to be rewarded with arousal that comes without responsibility, expectation, or demand. Arrayed before him are a seemingly endless variety of unclothed women, images of explicit carnality, and a cornucopia of perversions intended to seduce the imagination and corrupt the soul. This man need not be concerned with his personal appearance, his uh, physical appearance, his personal hygiene, or his moral character in the eyes of a wife. Without this structure and accountability, he's free to take his pleasure without regard to his unshaved face, his slothfulness, his body odor, his physical appearance. His, he faces no requirement of personal respect. No eyes gaze upon him in order to evaluate the seriousness and worthiness of that desire. Instead, his eyes roam across images of unblinking faces, leering at women who make no demands upon him, who never speak back. And who can never say no. There is no exchange of respect. No exchange of love. And nothing more than the using of women as objects for his individual and inverted pleasure. He then writes. These two pictures are deliberately intended to drive home the point. That every man must decide who he will be, whom he will serve, and how he will love. In the end, a man's decision about pornography is a decision about his soul, a decision about his marriage, a decision about his wife, and a decision about God. End quote. So it's not surprising that this father sets in stark contrast the enticement and the ensnarement of sexual sin that we see in the first part, verses 7 through 14, in contrast to, to marriage. That's the way this wise father now leads his son's instruction. Point number two, enjoys the, enjoy the pleasures of intimacy within marriage. Before we look at this section, we, we need to remember the broader context of a biblical worldview. God is a God who gives many good gifts. One author has put it this way. He is a yes God. He is a yes 
God. And the pleasures of intimacy, of sensuality, were created by God for our good and his glory. So God's no's are to protect his good gifts. Do you see that? He gives good gifts. And he gives no's, yes, but they are to protect his good gifts. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I'd love to just address you directly if I can. God isn't against human pleasure or fulfillment. He is so for it that he forbids things that would threaten it. Is that how you view the God of the Bible? I think that's what we'll see here. His nose protect his good gifts. He doesn't want his good gift of human sexuality to be squandered or perverted. So his way is the best way. And we can trust our good God when he denies us some short-lived pleasure to preserve for us lasting joy. Do you see the goodness of God in, in this? I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. And before I read, I want to just prompt you to notice the commands in the passage. These are commands, instructions from the Father to the Son, by implication from God himself to, to us. Notice the yes commands given to this married couple. He uses imagery, imagery of, of thirst and of satisfaction. A lot of it does not need much comment, but I want to read it. And then I want to address those who are unmarried and then address those who are married. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from, notice the emphasis, your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Here it is again. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely doe, a graceful deer. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. If you're here this morning uh, and you are a young person and you're not married and that's a desire the Lord has given you, there is, there is wisdom in saying, man, this is a passage that will encourage me in my waiting. I should anticipate point number two, even as I see the goodness of the warning found in point number one. I want to address young men in particular. I think that your sex drive is often God's invitation for you to consider and prepare yourself for marriage, to become the type of man who a godly girl would have reason to trust and gladly love. Look at verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Marriage is, is helpful in the pursuit of Christian faithfulness, yes. But, fellas, marriage isn't God's answer for your lust. Marriage doesn't win the battle with lust. No, you must repent and pursue Christ. He must be central and he must be weighty in your life. And you must pursue 
purity. Walk in purity and fidelity as a single man so that you're ready to pursue marriage in the future. One of the resources that you have in your bulletin that I would encourage you, especially single men, is entitled Sex and the Single Man. You see the link there in your bulletin. Notice the central command. There's three let's. Let the relationship be exclusive. Let the relationship be a blessed joy. Let her body satisfy, exhilarate you at all times. And then in there you have this phrase, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I think it's significant that it does not say rejoice in your young wife. You see the difference, right? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Lifelong. So a husband who has grown old with his wife can still know the wisdom of this command. Married men, whatever your wife looks like should be your ideal. God doesn't give an ideal. Weight, eye color, hair, you know, you go down the line. No, he commands men, husbands, to desire their wives. So this is a great big yes, right? For the good of both spouses in marriage. And lusting is wanting a woman that one doesn't have, right? Wanting what's not ours, wanting who is not your wife. And God commands you to want and to enjoy your God-given wife. That's literally what he commands here. The end of verse 19 has been translated different ways. I want to read a few of them. If you have the King James, you might have something like, Be thou ravished always with her love. New King James, always be enraptured with her love. ESV, be intoxicated always in her love. NASB, be exhilarated always with her love. Holman Christian Standard, I, I like this one the best. Be lost in her love forever. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if you are married, notice the encouragement here. Enjoy the pleasures of intimacy within marriage. Key two words, within marriage. And the focus here is certainly on physical enjoyment within marriage. But the context, marriage, is one of relationship. And I think we see it in our passage. So he talks about the wife of your youth, verse 18. But elsewhere he's talked about this forbidden woman or strange uh, he talks about the adulteress down in verse 20. And then there's another word used twice in our passage. And it's the word stranger. Stranger. A wife is known. Other women are strangers. Right? You, see the, you see the parallel, right? So the intimacy and the, the pleasure in this passage is in the context of marriage. A relationship marked by a deeper knowing. The wise man smells the world's lie that one woman for life is boring. And that man responds by rejoicing in the wife of his youth, learning to know and love her deeper and deeper until death separates them. Fulfill your responsibility, both as a man and as a male, as a male and as a man, and be the type of man your wife has every reason to respect in that context pornography and here especially pornography in marriage is a sin against your wife and i would say if you're not yet married it is a sin against 
her future wife. Ask yourself the question in light of God's good gifts and the context with which he gives so many yeses. The question in verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? When temptation comes, maybe the Lord would use Proverbs chapter 5. And you would call to mind the, the deceptions and the destructions of sexual sin, of sinful sensuality. And you would stay clear of the sin and of known temptations to that sin. You would call to mind the delights of God-ordained sensuality and sexuality within the context of marriage. And you would not forget the larger context. Calling to mind the eye of the Lord. He knows. He sees. And if you're a Christian, calling to mind the context of your relationship with Jesus. Union with Christ. You are dead to sin. And you are alive unto Christ. So we come. Not from a place of performance or perfection. But we come with our brokenness. Even our brokenness in this area. And we find in Christ forgiveness. And we find in Christ freedom. And we find that through Christ, we can know him and that knowledge will lead us into purity. We'll be reminded that we are free not to sin anymore. In just a moment, uh, we are going to respond in song and we are going to sing. And uh, you'll see the title there in your bulletin. And this is uh, the context of which we, we look at these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 lists many sins, some of which are sexual, and it says, and such were some of you. Not one of us has lived such a pure life that we are deserving of God's grace, and not one of us has lived such an impure life that we are beyond the reaches of God's grace. Praise the Lord. Those things that have been broken and damaged by sin, even the most personal things, even the most intimate things, where sin attacks so deeply and hurts so, so much. Even those things can be redeemed, can be restored, can be made new. If not in this life, in the life to come. Let me close in prayer before we sing grace greater than our sin. Father God, we are thankful that you give practical instruction. That there's not areas of life that are so in our face where we so often struggle so deeply and so long that just remain so unaddressed. No, rather, you, you speak to us with words of wisdom here in the context of a father to a son. These are your words to us. May we heed them. May we apply them. May we seek not only to live in purity, but also to stay away from temptation. Help us to remember the wisdom of your many yeses and to receive your no's as protecting your good gifts. Father, we, we confess that all too often we, has, we have uh, sought to satiate and satisfy our desires 
through illegitimate means. We have run after what does not satisfy. And we have turned from your all-sufficient grace. So, Father God, I pray for those who are in Christ here this morning. That you would help us to remember your eyes. That you know, that you see. Help us to remember the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And help us to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Father, I pray for those who are outside of Christ. Father, I pray that they would see the goodness of your gift of human sexuality with its many joys. Father, I pray that they would see their need to to turn from their sin and trust in Christ's forgiveness and grace that they can be cleansed, that their testimony can be, and such was I. But I've been washed. I've been justified. I've been sanctified. Father, we ask now that you would be glorified as we respond in song. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.